The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering with 28 offices along the Gulf Coast. The folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numeric modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. And now they have a brand new coastal resiliency department headed up by our very own Peter Ravella. Check them out at lja.com. We are also brought to you by Coastal Transplants. Coastal Transplants prides itself on offering specific environmental and horticultural expertise with practical firsthand knowledge of all aspects of coastal revegetation projects. Their high quality native and wetland plants, extensive agricultural and horticultural experience, along with their skilled and respectful crews, make Coastal Transplants your one-stop solution for restoring coastal ecology of your barrier island community. Learn more at CoastalTransplants.com. And we are brought to you by the Dune Science Group. Did you know that fiberglass is one of the strongest and most durable building materials in the world? That it is resistant to deterioration caused by UV light and salt water? Well, the Dune Science Group does. They offer a full slate of solutions for dune walkovers and boardwalks that are made of fiberglass and built to last. They can handle your dune walkover project from beginning to end, including permitting, design, and construction of the strongest and most durable dune walkover on the market. Learn more at the thedunesciencegroup.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. My name is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Charleston coverage of the Social Coast Forum 2020 continuing from Charleston. Uh, Tyler and more great guests to bring to our listeners around the United States. Today, we're going to talk to one of the important folks at the National Estuarine Research Reserve Program. Specifically, welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast, everybody. Kristen Goodrich, she is the Coastal Training Program Coordinator at the Tijuana River National Estuarine Research Reserve, and I'm really looking forward to learning all about it. Welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast, Kristen. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. And that was a mouthful. <laughs> you did it. Thank you. I tried to get that. But uh, so, uh, well, and I should say we got Bill here with us, too. Yeah. yeah. Bill, welcome back to the program. Bill O'Byrne, uh close friend of the pod uh soon to be host on uh the american shoreline podcast network joining us uh on for this interview but kristen you know i just to start i would like to uh learn a little bit about the tijuana uh estuary and just i I don't know much about it and then you know i want to get all into the uh, the psychosocial uh impacts of of my career is like a hurricane your talk today um, but let's start with with where you work and just what this place is like. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm based in San Diego, but the Tijuana River National Estuarine Research Reserve, or the acronym NEAR, as we say on the East Coast. Yes, we'll say NEAR. <laughs> Thank Everybody, you. Everybody, <laughs> so when you hear NEAR, that's the reserve. That's folks. the reserve. Um, is an incredible place because it is based or situated on the U.S.-Mexico border. So three quarters of the watershed of the research reserve is in Mexico. So everything wow. that we do at the mm. reserve has a binational focus and lens. Um, it makes for our work, it makes our work very complicated, but also really interesting. I think um, I was drawn to it intellectually 10 years ago uh, when I arrived at the reserve in 2009, but it's still just as fascinating to me as it was when I started 
Well, Kristen, way tell, back when. T- tell us about that. A decade ago, you arrived at the reserve. Um, what brought you there? What got you into the business of coastal management or this type of work? How did you become uh, the professional that you are today? Yeah. Well, um, I started my career at the EPA in Washington, D.C., working on issues related to um, Gulf of Mexico hypoxia, the dead zone. Wow. Yeah. Um, But because I was situated in D.C., I felt there was some distance from the issues that I was working on. And this is true. (laughs) (laughs) Inside the Beltway. (laughs) And I saw a job posting for um, a position at the Mm -hmm. Tijuana Estuary, and I was really intrigued by what that might look like and what that could mean for me in my career. Um, So I flew out to California for an interview um, from the East Coast and was just totally taken aback by what I saw. And... um, thought too that maybe by switching from a 31 state watershed the Mississippi River watershed that by moving to the Tijuana estuary things would maybe be a little Simple. yeah simpler <laughs> no, no <laughs> and not. came to find that working you know, b- between two countries is actually quite complex well, you know when I was looking at the map before the show uh, about the the watershed and it's it, as you say it straddles the US Mexico border and this is the southwest corner of the continental United States. So when you're looking at the all the way down to the bottom corner on the left of the map is your reserve exactly. where you're located. What a cool spot. Um, what, how, how is it possible to manage a watershed that's binational like this? What does that mean for you in your job and for the reserve team? Yeah, well, um, it really requires us to be very collaborative Um, very creative in terms of how we think about environmental management. Um, The Tijuana Estuary is one of the last intact coastal wetlands we have left in Southern California. Wow. And when I say intact, I mean the I-5 freeway is not running through it or Amtrak. It actually has some ability to migrate inland in response to rising sea levels. So a lot of people have their eyes on the estuary for that reason, among others. Um, But up against the Tijuana Estuary, you have immense and intense urbanization. So about 2.5 million people in the city of Tijuana, and that's probably a conservative estimate by the census standards, pressed up against this last resource. So it kind of paints a really interesting picture to think about um, issues around resilience and and issues around recovery um, that make our work, I think, I think um, makes our work really, really fascinating. So, Christian, a lot of the reserves are in either state agencies or might be in academics. Can you tell a little bit about where you're working, uh, which agency you're affiliated with? Yeah, well, I work for a nonprofit that's a partner of Mm -hmm. our federal-state partnership. And my profit is called, nonprofit is called this, uh, the one I work for is called Southwest Wetlands Interpretive Association. And that was started by um, a really amazing individual, Dr. Mike McCoy, who um, pretty much single handedly got the reserve to be protected as a federally and federally and internationally recognized. Um, but that took a lot of work. That's kind of one of those stories of a, a real local environmental advocate and activist working very hard to get a place protected such as the Tijuana estuary it was pretty monumental for its time and and tell us let's dive in a little bit more into uh the relationship with mexico on this um this must be a binational uh agreement that uh codifies the protection of this estuary 
How does that work? And do you have a colleague on the uh, Mexican yeah. side that you work with uh, to, to, to make this work bi-nationally? Yeah. So the Tijuana Estuary is protected on the U.S. side by the National you know, NOAA's National Estuary and Research Reserve System. We have a number of landowners within the River Valley on the U.S. side. So California State Parks. County of San Diego, City of San Diego, City of Imperial Beach, Department of Homeland Security, the wow. U.S. Navy. It's really, really incredible when you think about the types of agencies and different missions that they have. Um, but when we cross over the border into Mexico, that protection is not there in the same ways. And so that collaboration piece really kind of begins to shine when we think about how to protect the Tijuana estuary, but taking into consideration some of the perspectives of those folks who are living in Tijuana, mm. both the residents and also folks who work for natural resource protection or city planning in the city. So there is lots of, um, there are kind of folks who work in Tijuana that might mirror the type of work that we do, um, but that we need to collaborate with in order to see environmental improvements on the Tijuana estuary side in the U.S. Wow. So, uh Let's let's take a tour. Let's go. Let's go to the reserve. Let's take our listeners on to the landscape. Uh, you've offered a couple of uh, characteristics. Two point five million people in the city of Tijuana, if not more. Uh, no Amtrak, which is great. No I five. <laughs> that's good. And uh, but also a major urban area just to the north of the reserve, right? The city of San Diego. Mm-hmm. So. Tell us, like, if you were t- t- telling your mom where you work, what, what, what's amazing about this landscape that you are part of managing? Yeah, well, you would see um, incredible opportunity to um, see wildlife and to see really restored a restored place in the northern arm of the estuary, which is, I, I think, really important because it gives you a glimpse into what Southern California used to look like, um, which is very rare. But... What you'll also see in these, in terms of these like beautiful natural resources and really expansive beach, and for Southern California, actually, not a lot of people on the beach, which is pretty rare. So it's a, it's a unique experience from that. No one go there. Nobody go there. We're just this is not a show. Let's that keep it that way. Right. No, you're not. You're not invited. No, the, the, the surfing is not good there. The terrible surfing. It's hot. There's a lot of mosquitoes. No, sorry. <laughs> you could walk down the beach for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, and not see another soul. Wow. It's pretty rare for, for Southern California, as you can imagine. Um, but what you'll also see kind of juxtaposed to some of these beautiful things that are found at the Tijuana Estuary are some really significant challenges. So what we see is trash and sediment and contaminated water that's a result of kind of the circumstances of being in this binational space. So the state of California, one of our partners in our, in our, in our state and federal partnership, manages um, what we call sedimentation basins that are in place to actually intercept the sediment and the trash and debris that comes through when it rains. And so um, you have, again, this juxtaposition between incredible natural beauty while at the same time seeing some of these effects of living and um, existing in this urban space. Yeah, that's, uh, that's interesting. And... You know, I just, I got to say that uh, when when I, having never been there, and I am a child of Southern California, so I uh, really, you know. <laughs> well, it really resonates with me when you talk about kind of that unspoiled Southern California space, because it truly is um, uh, very rare. And I know that, you know, just coastal wetlands are, I mean, we've just, 
really done a significant number on the coastal space of Southern California. Um, but I think it's just so cool um, that I, I want to say this the right way. Like growing up, the word Tijuana uh, went, meant a city in Mexico that uh, college kids would go to to party. <laughs> and it pretty much was synonymous with like debauchery. I mean, it was not Tijuana did not have any sort of uh, positive or certainly no environmental um, connotation uh, in my growing up years and it is just so rad to hear this other like version of the space and of that region that is natural and I mean I understand that it's complex um, and I just think that that's so cool. Uh, if it's okay guys I would like to transition and talk a little bit about what you were talking about earlier today at your presentation and I have the, the name of your talk which I thought I think is really cool. It's my work is like a hurricane, the growing psychosocial needs of coastal adaptation professionals. Um, tell us a little bit about what that means. Yeah. Well, and I also appreciate your, your Tijuana stories. There still is a little bit of partying there, but <laughs> <laughs> it's actually kind of one of my favorite places in the city is incredible. It's going through a bit of a, oh, re really? a renaissance. Yeah, where um, oh, folks are starting to travel back and um, the food scene and, and beer scene is, is very good. And so... I like going. I go a couple times a week, and so just encourage folks, if you haven't been and you're interested in exploring, the city well, is a fun and safe place to go. What, Tyler, one, I have one question By about, let's, uh, let's about put the, the... Let's put it on hold. <laughs> just let's go back to Tijuana. No, let's just, go back. I love it. I want to talk about the reserve a little bit, and I'm interested in the river. Uh, sure. Is it a perennial stream? Is it is it running all of the time? Um, tell us about the river basin that you operate in and, and how it, its health. Yeah, so the uh, because Southern California is a, in a Mediterranean climate, we actually the, the river is not running throughout the year. It only is running when it when it rains, and so um, we'd like to keep it that way. We're seeing a lot of what we call urban drool, which is um, runoff essentially from from the cities and from these urban centers that are happening throughout the year. And so what we're seeing is a lot more fresh water input than we'd like to see um, during the drier months. But the Tijuana River is channelized through the city of Tijuana until it reaches a water treatment facility, the International Boundary and Water Commission, um, before the river kind of crosses back into the United States. So um, it's highly modified, doesn't very much look like a river um, mm. in the Mexican side, um, but when the river is flowing, it's contaminated uh, in the U.S. And this is a major human health issue, public health issue, um, and one that we think about quite a bit um, in terms of social and ecological health. Okay, and and the other sort of characteristic I'm interested in, the health of the of the estuary itself, the delta. Is there a delta there? Is the tell us about the marshes where uh, this is an intermittent river? So mm -hmm. I'm very interested in what the biology operates like. But how's the health? Of, how is it doing? You know, it's doing actually quite well. Is um, it great? considering the the significant impact that these urban places are having on it and the fact that so many people are living around it. The Tijuana Estuary is incredibly resilient, um, as we find, I think, in a lot of natural spaces. When we give it just a little bit of room, yeah. um, it can do a lot. And so it's quite remarkable. One of the view from my office, actually, is overlooking the estuary, but then in the background, the border kind of snaking along into the Pacific Ocean. And so that 
um, that scene for me is really powerful because I think it just demonstrates the power of, um, well, just how resilient the Tijuana estuary right. is. So the health of the estuary is, is, is improving, um, although there's quite a stigma around water quality and, 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 and human health and public health. Um, yeah, I got, I'm just going to, we're going to keep talking about it. Uh, we're, I want, we will get to your talk, but the, you know, what, what's the hurry for? It's a podcast. <laughs> uh, well, I've never been there and I want to go. No, yeah, I, I know, me find too. Out. Well, and I'm, I, I have to say, so uh, I think I've shared with our listeners that I uh, was very privileged to be able to take a five-day uh, canoe trip uh, through Big Bend National Park um, right on the, uh, on the Rio Grande River uh, and spent several nights on uh, the Mexican side of the border. And uh, one of the things that I just could not help but think about is our relationship with our uh, neighboring country to the south and just how uh, when, boy when you're out there in in the middle in a nat- natural setting there just is no there's no border to be seen I mean it's it just it, it's almost you know you're looking up at the stars mm-hmm. at that like kind of bigger forces and you're like what what is this I'm not you know it's just it, it's the truth and I mean what in, you're kind of in this interesting not here where uh, the watershed passes from Mexico into the United States, which is interesting. The uh, you are working with, uh, you know, people in Mexico. And then, of course, what we know about the uh, National Estuary Reserve System is that these are like community based systems. So I suspect that, you know, principally the community in this case is on the U.S. side. And I'm, I'm just interested is there like resentment at the grassroots level toward about the water quality? And I mean, are you, how do you work on that? Yeah. Well, you know, I think there's a lot of finger pointing at Mexico for issues that we're dealing with in the United States around um, solid waste management, uh, water quality issues around sedimentation. Um, That's a, you know, that's a challenge in a lot of ways, because when you're looking up into the canyons uh, that are adjacent to the research reserve that are right up against the border, they're mostly um, they're mostly places where people have moved due to immigration. And so when NAFTA was put into place, the the employment rate um, in the city of Tijuana was actually quite high when compared to other places in, in Mexico and Central America. So so many people came up to Tijuana to work and what happened as a result were so many of these communities particularly the canyons that directly um, that are direct sub drainages into the Tijuana estuary became very urbanized without the ability for the city of Tijuana to come in with services like waste collection uh, water treatment sewage hookups that kind of thing so you could imagine um, if you had no place to throw your garbage where would it go Right. And so right now what we're dealing with is an issue where a lot of this um, this waste that has no collection ends up finding its way into some um, drainages and, and channels that end up blocking, um, blocking culverts, causing flooding, causing real great risk to people who are living in these places. Um, while we're dealing with that issue as an environmental issue downstream, it is very much a social issue. So kind of trying to balance the needs of both is something that we work on and are, are, are in perpetual pursuit of answers to. So, uh, Go ahead, Bill. Oh, 
Oh, so one of the things I think we've been trying to do um, this week is to educate some of the listeners uh, a little bit more about the NEARS programs, I mean, that the reserve programs. And uh, so many of the programs have different types of coordinators that do different things. You are the Coastal Training Program Coordinator. Do you want to just talk a little bit about that? What What does that mean? What kind of stuff do you do? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the Coastal Training Program is, is, well, I'm biased, but I think it's an amazing, amazing program that is um, found within each research reserve. So there are 29 coastal training programs and 29 coastal training program coordinators. And it's an amazing kind of community of individuals who are really in place at the reserves to take the research that we're doing, not only at the reserve, but within our bioregion. In our case, that spans from Santa Barbara down to San Quentin, Mexico. Um, Take the research that's happening and the science that's being produced and help translate that to decision-making. So that happens through typically training or technical assistance. In our case, um, you know, you had asked a question about, you know, who are we working with in Tijuana? I have a, an amazing colleague, her name is Ana Aguiarte, and she's our binational liaison. So we work hand in hand to try to get those training and technical assistance programs in place in the U.S., but also in Tijuana to be responding again to issues that both sides are facing, but that have a collective kind of unity there. Do you guys have any particular audiences that you're focused on, or is it, you know, is it K through 12 or above, or, uh, you know, professionals, uh, uh, local leaders? Yeah, well, our education coordinator calls it K through gray, because <laughs> we're working, <laughs> K on, through gray. we're working on a lot of community education. We're all in. <laughs> I'm included in that yeah. group now, yeah. but, um, but our audiences typically involve um, folks who are either in some coastal resource management role, city planning. Um, we work a lot with the municipality of Tijuana and then also the cities of San Diego, Imperial Beach um, in, on the U.S. side. So really folks who are in positions where they're um, making decisions about policy um, or trying to implement programs that are science-based. Mm-hmm. I want to go back to, and I think this is where, Tyler, let's go back to the, the topic you want I'm to raise, ready. which is your talk. Psychosocial. Yes, the talk today that you gave. Uh, go ahead, Tyler. Let's talk about what you, via, can I re- you came Can I read the title one yeah, more time? Read it. Via yeah. partying in Tijuana, yeah. That's right. Quote, my work is like a hurricane, end quote. The growing psychosocial needs of coastal adaptation professionals. Tell us about your talk. Sure. Um, well, this issue of uh, mental health impacts on people who work in the coastal and climate change adaptation realm is one that is uh, not unbiased. I myself have a hard time sometimes facing the kind of really grim realities of what climate change means to our coasts, what um, the loss of species, the loss of, loss of places mean. Um, and so, you know, I wondered for a while if I was the only one having these types of experiences of feelings of grief and loss and anxiety about the future. And um, and through our work, we're finding I'm not so alone. There's a lot of folks out there who are having a hard time doing what they do, especially um, considering the, the very grave impacts of, of what we expect climate change to bring. So, you know, and this is something that I find so interesting because uh, when we when we showed up uh, to this conference yesterday and through today, I was doing my vibe test, which is like, what's the vibe of the thing? Like, and it was so it's so positive. I mean, truly, the energy that I'm picking up from the people here is that of optimism and definitely kind of a glass half full view. Yes, there's changes. A change is going to come, but perhaps this is an opportunity for to create a better society. 
um, that is more equitable and where we uh, treat the environment better and so on and so forth. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, tell me, you know, you seem you seem upbeat as yourself. And I, I mean, I I completely I mean, I, I understand that just my the Tyler's vibe test is not the ultimate. It's not the ultimate. It's a good it's a good vibe test. But there's another there's another thread that I pick up, too, which is there's a there's a serious level of anxiety and uncertainty certainly came out in the, totally in the interactive theater presentation. Mm-hmm. I thought the this. And I and I kind of, of course, in talking to people about coastal issues, you do get this foreboding sense like this is serious business and we're not sure how we're going to tackle it kind mm-hmm. of feeling. Is that? The, yeah. Jet, what are you learning lots in, of, about that? Lots of feelings of overwhelm. But your your litmus test, your Tyler test is, I think, pretty good in that, um, you know, this group of professionals here, especially at Social Coast, are, are really um, amazingly resilient themselves and are, you know, looking for stories of hope, looking for success stories, sharing lessons learned. So this environment here, I think, is really therapeutic in that way. But what we are finding in um, some studies that we've been conducting around these issues of psychosocial resilience among the coastal professional community is that individuals are really experiencing what what we're characterizing as burnout. Um, This work is really hard. Um, It can be be overwhelming for many. Um, When you layer on that, that climate change piece, it becomes, you know, in some cases quite grim in terms of not only the loss we're seeing um, to, in our ecosystems, but also the impacts on communities that we work with and interface with on a regular basis. So, you know, that can be acute. That can that can happen, you know, after a disaster, for example, a natural disaster where we see lots of mental health impacts. And that's really well documented that, um, you know, these natural disasters are, are causing issues around mental health for communities who are um, on the front line. But professionals, I think, who are... Um, working in this space, it's a more of a chronic issue. It's it's chronic exposure to information about um, what, again, what might be lost and and kind of the the very real circumstances that we're we're working within. So, um, you know, we're documenting this this issue of burnout, and we want to do something about it. You know, we want to make sure that individuals who um, are so committed to this work, and I think you'll find that here at the Social Coast and within our coastal management community, individuals who are so dedicated to the work, it's a very value-driven thing, um, which probably makes our population a little more vulnerable um, to, to these effects. Mm-hmm. But how can we, how can we meet, um, meet the challenge? How can we get um, services and support to the coastal professionals who need it? You know, how can we help um, support the people who help protect us? Wow. So, so as the training program coordinator, are, are you guys developing trainings to help folks in these in, in these areas? Yeah, that's the idea. So right now, um, through a project we're calling the Adaptive Mind Project, that involves extraordinary individuals who are thinking about these issues from many different perspectives and from bringing um, many different disciplines to the table. Um, we're trying right now to really characterize the problem through um, through some survey work, and, and that's where we're, we're seeing these results around burnout. 
Um, ideally, what we'd like to do after trying to evidence the problem, again, it's, it's kind of being evidenced in um, the realm of the individual, right, or the, the general public who are kind of experiencing these natural disasters, less so in the, in the professional community. But once we're able to kind of document and evidence it, we want to use that to help really build uh, programming and training that ideally we could deliver through the Coastal Training Program and other kind of extension programs like Sea Grant. Wow. So it obviously it's an issue that uh, impacts all of the coastline of America and around the world. There's 29 of these estuarine research reserves. There's 29, as you said, education coordinators. Um, is it? Are you engaged with the other coordinators? Is this something that is being done across the near system? Um, it sounds like a serious effort. Yeah. Well, um, the the. The survey has been delivered to the National Estuarine Research Reserve System. So um, CTP coordinators, Coastal Training Program, Education, Research, and Stewardship coordinators have all taken part in it. Um, so we're getting a real pulse of the system. And mm-hmm. then from that, I think really uh, ideally would like to, to build uh, programming that's specific to specific roles. You know, there's, there's quite a bit of, um, there's quite a bit out there about the impact of uh, climate change on climate change scientists, for example. It's kind of an amazing resource out there called isthishowyoufeel.com. Hmm. And it's letters that climate scientists have written about their hmm. experiences and doing the work that they do and knowing what they know. Um, less so, I think, for those who are in this what we call boundary-spanning space. So individuals who are kind of thinking about how do we take that science and, and get it into policy, or how do we get policy more informed by science-based initiatives and endeavors. So um, really, this is kind of a new frontier in that way. Uh, do you mind if I ask who the uh, the originator of this initiative to, to, to do the survey itself, to develop program support for people, the practitioners of the trade and the communities who are affected. Uh, how did that come up? And would is it possible that you could share some of the early insights that have come out of the survey? Yeah, of course. Well, it, you know, interesting you ask. Um, my interest in this has been um, for quite a while, um, probably because I've been experiencing it myself in the work that I've been doing in this really um, challenging binational space. Um, but a conversation that actually emerged out of Social Coast a couple years ago with a colleague, Dr. Dr. Susie Mosier, um, who is uh, you know leading this effort, the Adaptive Mind Project. Um, it was a conversation that we had over a cup of coffee, just you know chatting about the challenges of doing this work and and um, the the belief that we both were not alone in the feelings that we were having about it. Um, so you know it it. A lot of people are thinking about these issues. The um, the idea to kind of survey and, and characterize characterize this problem among the coastal professional community kind of was, um, I think, in response to the fact that we had a lot of anecdotes about this. You know, we're having chats over coffee or having chats at happy hour about just how hard this work is, yet weren't really able to get any, um, you know, hard data around it. So the survey, we think, is is a really important step towards that, making this into something that is legitimized and ideally, I think, institutionalized in the organizations yeah. that we work with. Because we know it's true. I mean, like, I mean, I'm sure the survey will, like you said, it will be hard data, but there's no question that dealing with the the science every day, and I want to go back to something you said earlier about, you know, the uh, so many of the folks that get into 
this line of work, whether they're scientists or they're education folks like you, are are being are like answering a call to service. Um, and I, the thought occurred to me like, imagine taking an eighteen year old kid who like saw nine eleven and felt inspired to join the military and like serve their country, and then they go and they just lose all the time like and they can't win it would really be i mean it's hard on those soldiers anyway but i mean like you can imagine the psychological toll that that would take on a person and i definitely think that this community of people uh you know peter one of the things that we do is we try to sh- we try to de-siloize and like break down the little barriers and it ju- the thought just occurs to me that perhaps this is one of the causal factors of why we are so siloed it's a defensive uh posture um so that we don't have to confront uh you know the realities of uh what we're dealing with as a broader community i don't know something along those lines yeah well you bring up a great point i mean i think um mental health uh, of emergency responders is is thought about or mental health of those who um are in a position where they're providing mental health uh, services for individuals. You know, I, I argue that environmental professionals are just, you know, in, in the same position, that um, they're working to serve and protect our environment, and with that comes great stress um, and often, you know, great loss. And so um, what can we do to, you know, provide a cascade of care? those who are caring for the environment, you know, how can we care for them and how can we um, restore some of the energy that, you know, we know is there and we know is driving so much of this important work. So I, I see some transferability of this kind of study and work. Um, I've been, had dealt a lot with hurricane recovery mm-hmm. in the Caribbean and just on the part of uh, the folks that are the, the people working in recovery, just seeing what's going on there, um, knowing that you know they're paying a little bit more of attention to mental health as as something that's really critical in the part of recovering in a community, um, and and I think this research could be very applicable to you know some of the work that they're doing and they because I, I would assume that they're probably also getting uh, a lot of that burnout, uh, especially the people that work in the FEMA yes. world. Yeah, absolutely, and and some of these individuals live. Many of these individuals live in the communities that are being affected by these natural disasters. So they're in these kind of dual roles where they're not only working to, um, you know, on resilience efforts related to environment and social, but for themselves are also being impacted. Their homes and families and work is being impacted. So it's really a trifecta in that way. Uh, You've used the phrase a couple of times, and I think it's in the title of the speech, the adaptive mind. Help us understand that phrase and what that means. Yeah, well, I mean, we think of an adaptive mind, and this is an evolving definition as we learn more, but one that is able to kind of um, endure the stresses that come along with what um, what life brings. <laughs> In this case, um, when we're thinking about coastal professionals, what work brings, and that an adaptive mind is one that allows for like resilient thinking, um, the ability to kind of bounce back or bounce forward in, in some cases when we're not able to bounce back. Um, and, and that, you know, individuals are equipped with, um, equipped with resources and, um, and also a community that will help them kind of weather the storm. 
How has the response been? So do you come up with this notion, this experience, not coming up with it, having experienced this, shared this with other people, realized there's a common thread of, of difficulty and anxiety and stress that comes with this subject area as a professional. Um, as you've reached out and expanded the conversation uh, through the survey, um, what do you are people receptive to this? Do they think it's a, a distraction? What how does it sound? How's the community yeah. responding to this initiative? Well, I had some concern around it, right? Because this is this gets binned in that whole touchy feely realm. Right. It can be. <laughs> yeah, and, and, sure. and it shouldn't be. But yeah, yeah. How, how's it gone? Well, especially among, you know, folks who are science, scientifically exactly. oriented. Very left brain yes, kind of community yes. here. Um but it's been incredibly well received. I mean, every uh, space that we talk about this issue in, um, I have someone come up to me and say, thank you for kind of talking wow, about this. Great. This is really important. I thought I was alone in this. Um, that being said, I think in in a, in a number of cases now, the demand for getting these resources to these individuals who need it so badly um, is in some ways outpacing the the funding that we have. So we're in a real um, we're in a real push to to find and partner with organizations that might be able to mm. to help um, amplify the work that we're doing and and get folks together who again represent really unique perspectives um, to help us think through how to how to develop the the resources that um, we're realizing are, are very needed. You asked earlier about some of the results from the survey. I yeah. think you know they're they're really compelling, and it, it's still preliminary, and we're still gathering data. And um, bit by bit, we're we're um, bringing in different professional groups um, that we're we're bringing into the the population of the survey. But um, what we're finding are very high levels of burnout, a sense of, in some cases, hopelessness, that folks are feeling like the work they do is not enough to address climate change, yet really high levels and reports of the the just complete commitment to working on it irregardless wow. <laughs> and so you know that um, is is a very it's it's very hopeful that we know that that folks are not giving up yet at the same time it's it's it could be a recipe for its own disaster when folks are working so hard yet feel like there is <laughs> it so is a recipe for burnout I mean yeah, that sounds yep. like how burnout happens right right well it's kind of um, you know it's the trench warfare of the issue because the folks who work in the research reserve first of all are in the physical location you're not inside the beltway you're down on the coast you're in the river shed you're in the watershed this is true of all of the folks in in the system um they're scientists so they're counting everything and they're seeing things (laughs) change they're like boy there's less birds there's this is happening the water temperatures they're vividly experiencing what's going on so they're in the trench and they're then charged with this magnificent responsibility to do something to protect the landscape they've been assigned to i mean that has got to feel and it's it came up in in nicole's uh speech this morning uh who's the the nicole LaBeouf. thank you the assistant administrator of the national ocean service when she said i'm starting to use the word existential and for folks who are not caught up maybe on the issue of climate change, this is sort of phase two. These are folks that have moved beyond is it reality, who are starting to contend with it and are understanding the magnitude of it. And I think you've got to hit, 
early in that realization, there has to be this f- sense of futility and despair because of the scale. Mm-hmm. And I just think that's got to be an emotionally challenging moment when you go, I don't know if I can do anything about this. Is that kind of the, what's happening? Yeah, very much so. And earlier today, you know, the discussion around um, that Nicole was, was just reflecting on her own experiences about being asked in her position about, um, you know, what keeps you up at night. I think, you know, this is the new normal. This is <laughs> our work. Our work keeps us up at night for many reasons. You know, there are lots of responsibilities that come along with our jobs, but um, something has shifted. We're in a, a period of transformative change where those worries are becoming very much, I think, co mingled with the idea of, of climate change and the impacts of climate change. And so, um, you know, she also pointed out that, you know, flipping that question about, you know, what keeps you up at night, but what also gets you up in the morning yeah, and go, <laughs> and gets you to go to work every morning, I think is one that's very central to our study um, and to our project, because we know that um, these individuals who are in this community are here for the long haul and um, they're going to keep fighting. And so we want to think about ways in which we can make that fight just that much easier. Great. So I have to ask you the question she asked. Uh, What gets you up in the morning to keep doing what you do every day? (laughs) Um, ah, That's a great question. I couldn't imagine doing it any differently. I, you know, we we really don't have any other option. I've always been amazed, amazed and drawn to the coasts and the ocean and am completely fascinated by it. Um, I'm scared for it. Um, I'm scared for a lot of things that our environment is, is fighting and is up against. But um, I'm, also, I'm also hopeful. I think that um, we have so many dedicated people um, here in this community, here in this space at the Social Coast. But also when I go home and, and work with my colleagues are a huge source of inspiration for me. Um, and I, you know, I think uh, we have a lot of work ahead of us. And I, <laughs> I think. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah. Uh, thank you for staying in the trenches. Oh, it's not God. easy to do that. And I admire people who are, I, 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 there are folks who take the frontline positions in all kinds of disciplines. Y'all are frontline players. That's tough work. And so ladies and gentlemen, it's Kristen Goodrich, the Coastal Training Program Coordinator for the Tijuana River National Estuarine Research Reserve, the bottom southwest corner of the continental United States. Google it up, learn about this place, and go see this incredible beach. You and go have some beers in Tijuana. <laughs> and, then go, and then go down to Tijuana, because I hear that's fun. I've never been there. I kind of want to, I definitely want to hit Tijuana. I, I highly recommend it. Yeah. I thought it was the tequila. Well, yeah, that's right. Well, I mean, a cerveza and a tequila, you of do course. both, but it sounds like a, it sounds like a really interesting uh change and transition and just really cool part of the world you work in yeah and so important and i think this notion and it's one of the reasons we wanted to come there's nothing like this social forum that i've been to where there is this community sense and responsibility toward each other it's fantastic and the work that you're doing and more folks who are in public service and the quality of people that do the jobs that you guys do. Thanks a lot for what you do. Well, thank you for having me. And I recommend a Tecate. It's the beer of our watershed. <laughs> I love Tecate. The beaches is said to 